Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from January of 2016 on the discovery of the bristly mammoth in Chelsea, Michigan. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. Good evening, everyone. Here I am in the middle of the room. We're going to get started now. Thank you all for your patience and for your cooperation. I'm so glad to see that everybody has a seat. And uh, my name's Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. We're the organizers of this event, which is a science cafe called A Mammoth Find. First, we're going to take a minute to thank our sponsors who are a couple sitting in front of me, Andrea and Dave Scott. Thank you so much for sponsoring this Science Cafe. And thanks to Andrea and Dave, we do not have our donation box sitting out tonight. So. But don't let, uh, think for a minute that I won't be asking you for money in a minute. But first, I'd like to thank Connor O'Neill's for making this room available. Yeah, they really uh, went overboard tonight to help us out, so I hope that you will thank your servers appropriately. So as you know, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the mammoth that was found in Chelsea, and we're looking for your input on the exhibit of the fossils that were found. We're going to be talking about that tonight, but there are other opportunities for you to give input starting Friday of this week. Friday through Tuesday at the museum on the fourth floor in the back gallery, we're having a pop-up exhibit workshop where members of the public can come and give their ideas and ask the questions that they'd like us to answer in the exhibit. So there's a flyer about this on the table over there, and, and you can pick up one of those, or just come to the museum this weekend and give us your ideas if you have additional after this evening. And, and finally, guess what? We didn't expect to do this exhibit. We didn't plan for it. We didn't know that a mammoth was going to turn up in Chelsea. <laughs> so a lot of you know that we have been fundraising to pay for the exhibit because we didn't budget for it. And I want to thank everyone in the room who has already contributed, because a lot of you have. Thank you so much. But those of you who haven't contributed, or those of you who would like to contribute again, there are cards on your table that you can fill out with envelopes so that you, if you put credit card information on that card, you can slip it in the envelope. And Nora is wearing blue. She's over by the front door. You can hand your card to her, or there's a box on the table next to the food where you can slip it into a box. So thank you all for your support, and I'll turn this over to Kira. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, I'm going to not, not uh, get in the way... Um, very much. I just want to take a few minutes to introduce our speakers who have very generously agreed to come and talk to you about mammoths, and they both know an awful lot. So um, without further ado, you guys, if you've not been to a science cafe, our format is 
They're going to talk for just a few minutes um, each. Then we're going to go to a discussion phase at the tables. And then at the end, we'll go to a full group moderated discussion. So that's our format. And our speakers are Daniel C. Fisher behind me. And Adam Roundtree to my left. A few brief words about them. Daniel Fisher received his professional training in geological sciences at Harvard University in 1975 and then taught paleontology at the University of Rochester. In 1979, he moved to the University of Michigan, where he is now the Claude W. Hibbard Collegiate Professor of Paleontology in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences and the Director of the Museum of Paleontology. His current research deals mainly with the paleoecology of extinct relatives of elephants, uh, especially mammoths and mastodons. Working in North America and in the Russian Arctic, he uses data on the structure and composition of mastodon and mammoth tusks to reconstruct aspects of their behavior, growth, history, nutritional status, reproductive biology, and response to environmental conditions. This helps to improve our understanding of the cause of their extinction and the nature of their interaction with early humans. Please welcome Daniel Fisher. Adam Roundtree is the Research Museum Collection Manager at the UM Museum of Paleontology. He earned his PhD here, studying the weaning age and gestation period of mammoths from Siberia using tusks and remarkably well-preserved mummified uh, mammoth calves. As a graduate student, Adam participated in both mammoth and mastodon excavations in Michigan, aided in the production of a mastodon mount at the Museum of Natural History, which many of you have seen, and he conducted research on American mastodons. After this, Adam took a position at the University of Western Australia in Perth, where he focused on the application of tree ring methods to fish and coral data to study climate change impacts. And in 2013, we're lucky enough that Adam agreed to come back to the U of M to manage the Museum of Paleontology's vertebrate fossil collection, where he's been an important contributor in the development of an online fossil repository that allows users to view and manipulate 3D models of fossils. So this is really important for people who are working in different places. Um, and Adam's current research focuses on the analysis of growth increments in modern and fossil animal tissues. Please welcome Adam. So each of these gentlemen has a brief presentation, and then we will break for some conversation at the tables. Uh, so guys, can you take it from here? Thanks very much, Kara. Um, you know, I didn't know there were so many people that love mammoths as much as I do. <laughs> Someone told me the room was like this at four. So, so I'm just happy that we're able to be here and that you're able to be here and that we have this opportunity to, um, should we say, celebrate what was really a, a very special experience this last fall. Um, 
I don't know quite a tell the I don't know quite how to tell these stories in the ten or so minutes that Kara has allowed me. <laughs> so I'm going to have to just uh, give it a uh, a flying leap and and go for it. Um, it was I think September 30th when I got a message from Jim Brisley and Trent Satterthwaite, who are sitting right here. Um, And this email message included some photos, and in these photos, I recognized part of the pelvis of, a, of a, what was either a mammoth or a mastodon. But I contacted them and said I would be out that afternoon. I was there uh, just a couple hours later, and in looking at the bones that they had, was able to recognize that, that another of the bones they had was actually a piece of a scapula or shoulder blade and it had a distinctive curve that meant that this was a mammoth, not a mastodon. We have two elephant-like animals from the Ice Age of Michigan here, and this was a mammoth. They're more rare, and thus it was already more interesting than I might have expected. We talked for, what, a few hours, and uh, then I decided to um, suggest tentatively, that we might walk out in the field and just see if by chance there was anything more there. Uh, they had told me about how they had found the bones they had. They'd been digging to install um, basically part of a drainage system, a vertical pipe. And you'll see that in the, in the, the footage that we'll be showing in just a moment. And in the course of doing this, they were each on their own excavator, uh, digging opposite one another, and basically, they had sort of waved to one another over the noise of the machines and, and said, there's bones coming out of the wall underneath you. That they could only see the other guy's side. And the other one said, there's bones coming out of the wall under you. And um, they had had to do their job. That came first. So they installed this pipe. They, um, they pushed the dirt back in so that everything was secure. But they did manage to snag three of the bones that they had seen. The rest were pushed back in. So among those three was something that was distinctively mammoth. When we walked back to the location, first one, and then another, and then another, within 10 minutes, I'd picked up, I think, 15 more bones, 10 or 15 more bones. And we knew then that there was real potential here. We talked about the, the, the options, how this might work out, and Jim expressed his concern about, uh, for a farmer, fall is an important time of year, you may know. Um, he had many, many acres that needed to be harvested within the next week or so. And he had all this, this drainage project that had to be finished. And he said, I'm sorry, but I can only give you one day at this job. And I thought, well, I'll take whatever time we, we have. And while we were standing there, one of his neighbors and friends, um, uh, Jamie Bollinger, came out. Um, Trent and Jim had been there all along, and they had sort of walked me through their discovery and how it, how it all came to pass. But now Jamie was on the scene. And he, if you don't know, owns an, exca an excavation company. And he said, you know, I've been working in these parts for 
what, 45 years, something on that order. So I've never found one of these and always wanted to. If you do this tomorrow, I'll give you a few hours. And it didn't take, didn't take anything more than that for me to go back and round up a group of undergraduates and graduate students, all of our associates, as many as we could get, and we were there the next morning. Um, I know I've got to, uh, uh, to, to wrap this up quickly, so uh, the, the bottom line is that um, with the help of those three folks, we were able to do an amazing amount in one day of work. Um, we found quite a bit. Uh, you'll see photos of things in a moment. Uh, most of the, well, first of all, the head, basically, of this mammoth, it's two giant tusks that sweep out just in an incredible way. We found most of its vertebral column down the backbone to the pelvis, parts of the pelvis, many ribs, basically three quarters of them, a kneecap, but no other limb material. So it was interesting, kind of mystifying, a little tantalizing, you could even say. Um, I think what I'll do is break quickly now and show you um, uh, what's called B-roll footage from the university video. This is two of our, our helpers handling the jaw. We're working here. We're already down at about 8, almost 10 feet. There's what's called the sacrum, the vertebrae in the right that you sit on back here. That, it's a little bit out of order here. Uh, that was the skull and jaw. There was the pipe that they installed. And um, uh, you'll, see, you'll see Jamie there on the machine. He's, he's taking care of preventing collapse of the, of the sidewall there. Um, that's a view of the, of the excavation area across the field. <clears throat> there you see again the pipe and again some of the work. There's about as many people as can fit in the bottom of that hole. And we're basically clearing away some of the sediment with shovels. As we get closer to the bones, we're using trowels. That's putting a piece of scapula in. And this is the great lift. We put toe straps around the skull and tusks and it came out as if it was floating out of the, of the excavation and onto Trent's flatbed trailer. Well, that's... If, if we can get the slides back, I, want, I had a few pictures of the skull laid out in the lab. And um, what I wanted you to see... Well, okay, th there it is in the pit. That, we're now into the slides, that's fine. So you're looking down on the skull, which is that big lump between the, the various people that you see there. You can see the sweeping tusks before they were raised. Now the next slide. Okay, there you're looking from one side of the skull. It's, it's, it's done a face plant on the table. The back of the skull is toward the left. The front of the skull is toward the right. Those openings are the tusk sockets. That's where the tusk came out. And you'll notice that there's damage along that top surface. If you look at your handouts, on the back side of the handout, Adam has taken a digital model of a mammoth that uh, is available from the Smithsonian Institution. And he's put on some, it looks like, plexiglass planes that cut off part of the skull. And what's the uppermost surface here is actually that slightly slanted 
but almost vertical plane that cuts off the back corner of the skull. And indeed, all of the planes on this diagram are areas of damage. And although I don't have time, I think, to um, uh, explain that damage really right now, it relates to human processing of the head of this animal to remove the brain, probably to eat it, and other tissues associated with the anatomy of the skull. And I'll leave it at that. Um, Ashley, just pop through the next maybe three slides. There you're looking into the tusk cavities. Um, uh, another, and through the another couple, and that'll, that'll be enough, all we can do. That's from the back of the skull. What um, I would draw your... Okay, that, that's all. Um, I was going to show you something else, but we're running out of time. Um, well, I'll go back one. Um, right here, where the arrow is, if, I, if it comes back to me, there it goes, where the arrow is moving, this is the, as it were, the back door to the tusk socket. And this part of the skull is broken open. And what could be the reason for that? Well, that's access to the tusk pulp tissue. And as best we can, and it seems that both the back ends of both tusk cavities were opened. And the bottom line is this is like a sardine can that's been opened this way, opened that way, opened this way to get just the juiciest parts out. Um, and that's part of the indication that we're dealing with evidence of human association here, human use of this carcass. Now, um, my time is really gone, and I don't want to take too much from, uh, from Adam's time. What do I need to uh, mention? Um, one more thing about this mammoth, and it has to do with the, the orientation of its tusks and something of their geometry. These are not the tusks of most mammoths from North America. These are not typical tusks for what are called Colombian mammoths. At the same time, they're not typical tusks or what are called woolly mammoths. North America has two kinds of mammoths that, that, um, that lived here during the Ice Age, and this is neither. It's a kind of mix of the two. And in fact, we have strong evidence, certainly from the anatomy of the animal, that this is a hybrid. Now, these two have always been considered separate species, but, you know, the world is a complicated place. And sometimes things we think of as separate species, oh, let's say brown bear and polar bear, they actually interbreed. And this, this mammoth appears to have been a hybrid. The other thing that I just want to mention, and I've certainly alluded to this already, there is this evidence of human association. And it's more than just how the skull was broken. There were some boulders near the skull that are not the sort of things you would expect right there just under, under normal, natural sorts of events and circumstances. Um, uh, there's more that I could go into, but, um, uh, but there's a strong indication of, uh, of human association with this animal. Um, I think I'd better close here just by saying that um, what's important about this site is that it's telling us, it has the, I should say right now, it's beginning to tell us, it has the potential to tell us a lot about these animals and their biology. And in doing so, it tells us a lot about this part of Michigan history. 10 to 15,000 years ago, when the first humans were coming 
on into this, uh, into this part of the world. At the same time, it also gives us hints about the interaction between these humans and these mammoths. And that's important both for our understanding of human history and also ultimately probably for the understanding of, of why the mammoths went extinct. And that's actually a very big problem. It's not only mammoths that were lost at this point in Earth history. It's mastodons and ground sloths and giant beaver and dire wolves and, and the big saber-tooths. Uh, it's all these different kinds of animals. North America lost about three-quarters of its large-bodied mammalian fauna at this time. And so these are big problems that many people are interested in solving. And obviously one specimen will not solve them all in one sweep, but it can give us interesting information that helps, uh, that helps make the case um, uh, for what really happened at this time. Now, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Adam, who has, um, I mean, Kira said something about what he does. Uh, he has really revolutionized our ability to um, uh, get information from our specimens, um, deliver that information to people uh, through the internet, and, um, uh, and basically make good on these, these promises, this potential for specimens like this to, to help us solve these great problems. So I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about the kinds of things that, that he's doing right now with this specimen. This is not the tusk of the bristly mammoth. This is a tusk of a juvenile uh, woolly mammoth from Siberia. But this is an animation that shows you something about why tusks are special. This was produced by Mike Cherney, who's one of our recent PhDs. What you're going to see when this starts is a series of cones that represent annual growth increments in this tusk. And you'll see how one fits inside the previous one and the pattern of growth that occurs in the tusk. So this was produced using micro-CT data, and the tusk had to be sectioned to fit into the micro-CT scanner. So it's a little dark there, but each, each year will come up in a different color, and at some point it'll be a little clearer how one sort of conical structure fits inside the previous one. And what you end up with here is a structure where the earliest form material is out at the tip, and then the last form material just before death is on the inside in the tusk socket. So this is what it looks like in visible light. This is a mastodon tusk that's been sectioned uh, transversely and longitudinally. And you can see these uh, bands in there, sort of V-shaped uh, bands in the longitudinal section and little rings in the, the cross section. And so these are annual growth increments, very similar to the rings in trees, and they can be used in similar ways to the rings in trees. So one of the most obvious things that you could do with this is go back and just count the number of annual growth increments and get an estimate of the age of the animal at the time it died. But you can also look at changes or variation in the thickness of those increments. That tells you something about the nutritional status of the animal. So how is that varying through, it life, through its life? That can sometimes be used to look at reproductive cycles. Another way to use tusks to extract information about these animals is to look at the chemical and isotopic composition of the material. So we could go in, take a sample from every year, and then look at changes in the composition, and that can tell us about things like the animal's diet and how that was changing through time, whether or not it was starving at any point, 
And then one of the, the ones that I find particularly interesting is we can go in and look at changes in the oxygen isotope composition. So I'm not going to go into too many details, but there's a seasonal pattern in oxygen isotope composition in rain and snow in the Great Lakes region. And it's been like that for a very long time. By going in and sampling the material in this tusk, well, so the, the mammoth is out there drinking water from ponds, drinking water from rivers, and that pattern that shows up seasonally gets put into the tusk and preserved. So if we go in and take samples, look at variation in that, we can see the seasons in this animal's life. And if we go and look at the last form material, then we can figure out what season this animal died in, which could have implications for how we understand its interaction with humans. So I'll leave that for, for discussion now. All right, well, this is a little dark, but, but I was going to switch now to talking about some of the work we've been doing with 3D models on this material and other materials at the museum. So in 2014, the Museum of Paleontology put out a new website called UMORPH, the University of Michigan Online Repository of Fossils. And it's a database-driven site that represents some of the specimens that we have in our collection, as well as some specimens from other collections. But the real strong point of the site is we have an interface where you can click on an image, open a three-dimensional model of some specimen, rotate it around, turn it upside down, take measurements on it, do whatever you need to do from any browser. So there's no plug-in required, there's no special software needed. You can do it from your phone most of the time. <laughs> so the, the URL for the website is on the handout. And you can look at that at a later point. But we just today put up models of the mandible, the lower jaw, from the bristly mammoth. And we also put up a model of one of the upper teeth. So the plan is to continue with those efforts in producing models. So the models are valuable not just you know, for making a nice website, but they actually serve in some ways to protect the specimen. So when we have something big and heavy, like a mammoth cranium or a mammoth mandible, just turning that over to look at the other side puts the specimen at significant risk. So what we can do is do that one time when we make the model, and then for most of the uses of, uh, or for at least some of the uses for that specimen, we can use the model for flipping it over instead of damaging the specimen or risking damage to the specimen, flipping it over for every researcher who comes to visit. Another thing we can do once we have the model is do neat things with 3D printing. So this is um, a 3D printed model. It's at 30% of life size of the mammoth that was uh, discovered in Chelsea. And this is printed at the University of Michigan 3D Labs in North Campus. It's a low-cost 3D print, and it's very easy to handle. The detail's pretty good. I thought we could pass this around, but just make sure it comes back, maybe. <laughs> It's a lower jaw. Yeah, the little spout part is the chin. We're not only doing modeling of, of new specimens, but also older ones. And this is one of the values of, of museums, is that this is a mandible of a, another mammoth from Michigan. The print failed on this one, so it, it doesn't have quite all of what should be there. But this specimen was discovered in 1937, and it's been in our museum. It's been studied since then. But now we can make it much more available to the public in ways that they never would have thought of in 1937. So we'll pass this one around as well.
Thank you very much. And we'll try to get that back up uh, working for you for, for during the main part of the discussion. So um, the next part of our science cafe has to do with conversations both at your tables or in your chairs. And for those of you over here, I have some of the discussion questions for you. Um, and in addition to the questions on your tables, um, which, are, which are questions about the content of this talk and, about, and things that you can discuss uh, that have to do with the content uh, of this find, we have some other questions for you because we'd like to pick your brain about what you'd like to see in the mammoth exhibit. So we have some questions. You see one here. It says, what would you like to see or do? Interactive components. Up behind Adam and Dan, it says, what would you like to learn more about? And in the back, it says, what would capture the attention of visitors? On your tables, there are some post-its, and there was a number on one of your post-its. I just want to encourage a little bit of friendly competition to see which table can come up with the best ideas. So during your discussion, this is table number three. There, you're going to write your ideas, your exhibit ideas, on the little post-its and put them on the big post-its uh, after you finish your discussion. Is that clear for everybody? The number, you can identify the, the table number for the idea. So at the next Science Cafe, I'll tell you which ones we decided to keep for which tables. So um, a couple of more words. I'm going to let Adam get back to telling you a little bit about the models, and then I'd like Dan to say just a brief word about what we think we're going to do for the exhibit. So, so this is what you would see if you went to the website and clicked on uh, the image of the, the bristly mammoth mandible. It's a little dark here again, but Ashley, can you zoom in? Uh, what, two finger expand like you would on an iPad? Yeah. So we're, we're getting really nice detail on the models, um, and we've made some improvements over, uh, over the last year. So this is neat to see. I wanted to mention, though, that, that I think this is a good opportunity for us to incorporate more sort of digital elements with the physical elements of the exhibit, um, either through 3D printing type things or, or using the digital models. But thanks, Ashley. <laughs> That's good. I'll just add um, a few comments on some of the kinds of things that we're already generating by our brainstorming about what the exhibit might include. It's our intent for the exhibit to include the entire original skull as it was recovered. So it's, it'll be the real bone, the real thing there in the exhibit. We also would like to put at least one of the tusks back in the socket. You may have noticed that we've pulled them. That's so that we can control their drying, so that we can study them and get some of this great information out of them. Once they're out, it would be a risk to the specimens to try to put that heavy thing back in the socket. We could do it, but it's probably best not to. And so our intent is to make a mold and cast of the tusks and put one of the casts back in one of the sockets. If we did both, it would take up a very large space, but we're thinking to use a corner in a special room in, on the top floor of Ruthven. 
And so at least one of the tusks will fit there. The other tusk we may cast and have the cast outside so that you can see all the part that's ordinarily hidden in the socket. We imagine having some 3D prints. We've even talked about having one that, um, that can be rotated this way and that. We just have to engineer exactly how we're going to do that, but I don't think that's an unsolvable problem. We're going to obviously to be dating the specimens. We'll know how far back in time it lived. We'll be learning things about its life, its season of death, its health status, things like that. Certainly some of that information can be portrayed. It's really just a question of, of how to, to uh, bring all this to the visitors. But all of those, in, all those points of information are certainly fair game. And I'll leave it at that for now. All right, go to it. We'd love your ideas on the exhibits, and we'd love you to discuss uh, the questions on your table. And um, so this is a time for you to interact with each other. I should say that at most of the tables, there's a ringer. Um, ra raise your hand. Okay. There's somebody at your table who knows a little bit about mastodons or mammoths. Just saying. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to interrupt your conversations at this point. We're going to go to our large group discussion. Okay, hi. Here we are in the middle of the room. I know it's, it's been a long night. You guys have been here for a while. Thank you for your patience. Um, at this point, we're going to go to a moderated group discussion. Um, and Dan has agreed to moderate. Thank you very much. So he will let speakers know when they have the floor and when they don't. <laughs> um, I'm going to be passing around this yellow cordless mic. Um, so please use the microphone to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and so that we can record your conversation for later podcasts. So we had to turn away about 25 people. So we're going to try to put the, a recording of this up on our website as soon as we can. So that is why we're asking you to use the microphones. Um, a couple of minor ground rules and then we'll get started. I'm going to ask you to please limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. Dan may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, please look at Dan to be recognized even though I have the microphone. Okay? Just so you know. Um, Likewise, we will give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, to just, just to diversify the voices we hear. So once you've spoken, let somebody else uh, ask a question. And I always hope that this part will feel more like a group discussion, um, particularly at this cafe. Um, we have a lot of expertise and experience in the room. So with this in mind, please feel free to address comments, exhibit suggestions, and questions to the group. Uh, as well as to the speakers. A um, couple more things. We like to foster open discussion and honest debate, so please be nice to each other or else. <laughs> and um, finally, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you may find yourself becoming extinct in the near future. No, just kidding. 
Um, <laughs> um, so please silence your cell phones. Um, and would somebody like to start us off? My question is, and I put it on the posting, did the humans that preserve the meat in the, in the swamp area, is it possible that that meat took on the, um, the fermentation or the sweet taste of the plants around it as it was stored over the season that helped keep it from possibly going bad or get taking on a muddier taste? I don't know whether you've actually looked into this in some detail, but you have hit on a very important point. It turns out that when you put meat into a pond like this, which has relatively acidic water, water that ab has abundant tannins and other organic components in it, what happens is the meat gets colonized by a special kind of bacteria, lactobacilli, that are the same ones we use for making yogurt and cheese and it ferments. It's exactly what it does. And that fermentation does indeed preserve the meat, makes it not friendly to the bacteria that would cause decomposition and cause, um, let's say, ill effects <laughs> on the part of humans who ate it. So I'm, this, was, this must have been a discovery of humans somewhere along the way, but this is one of the things that we've learned through studies of these sites studies of mastodons and mammoths in this part of the world. And it seems to be um, a real important discovery that permitted um, much of human subsistence in this area under a wide range of circumstances. It could go on and on, but uh, Kira will get after me. <laughs> Somebody else. Um, how do you know it was hunted because an animal could have killed it? You're exactly right. In fact, figuring out how an animal died is one of the most difficult things. And the reason is that many times the actual injury that causes death affects mainly the soft tissues, which of course aren't usually preserved, particularly at sites like this. So unless there's something that affects the bones, we're not likely to see it. So we often have to uh, sort of back off a little bit from a conclusion about how the animal died. And that actually is brought up in the first discussion question on your handouts. It's part of why we often say something vague like, well, there's some association with humans, you know, with the details of that association left unclear. But we do have a strategy for at least approximately answering that question. Even though it's often difficult to say for certain how an individual died, we can study samples of individuals. We sort of take a broader census-like approach. And one of the things that we've done is to determine season of death for animals that are butchered and compare that with season of death for animals that are not butchered and that are therefore presumably natural deaths. And we found that almost all of the butchered animals died in autumn. And that's actually a very rare time of year for the death of an animal without some evidence of butchery. 
so even though it's not a conclusion that you know establishes beyond a shadow of doubt that this animal was killed it's a more general conclusion that says the probabilities are really strong compellingly strong that most of these animals that show this distinctive season of death as well as ending up butchered and stored they probably were hunted does that it's a little bit of a complicated argument it's an argument that that sort of changes some of the terms of the investigation and generalizes it but but that's a very important point I'm trying to envision, you were talking about the head and the tusks and how you're going to display them in, based on space and weight and, and whatever. So are we going to be seeing uh, the, the head and just one tusk? Or is the other tusk going to be sort of hanging in air but just not attached? I would say the details are still negotiable, still you know, taking form. But a thought is that if the, if the specimen were sort of crowded into a corner, there might actually only be room for the head and one tusk in its actual position within the socket and sticking out as it did in life. The way we would convey the configuration of the entire animal is perhaps in a 3D printed model that showed both tusks. Mm -hmm. And so there you would see the whole thing. Having one tusk out does permit us to let you see the tusk out. And this growing end of the tusk with this deep pulp cavity, that's an interesting part of it too that most people never see. I was just thinking how dramatic, you know, the pictures of them taking the two tusks. And, the, and, and our question over here is what would capture the attention of visitors? And I thought yes. that having both of the tusks. Well, <laughs> I, really I think, I think that becomes attention. a point that yeah. we'll have to discuss with Amy and other exhibit museum folks and see how much space they're willing to commit to this exhibit. So I'm, I'm assuming the orientation of the skull being upside down is indicative that the animal was on its back. When you found the ribs, did you have any substantial documentation of their orientation to substantiate that the animal was on its back? It turns out that if you look carefully at the way the bones occurred in the excavation, this animal was not, let's say, in any particular orientation. It was all taken apart. It was like looking at, what, Legos scattered over the floor. Um, its head was flipped upside down, so it was facing down into the, toward the center of the earth. So its tusks were upside down, and that's the way we lifted it, of course. But there were other parts of the body that were one way, and another way, and another way. So... Um, um, so the orientation was um, uh, was not general for the whole animal. Uh, just to follow up on the prior comment, you know, what I think would gather the attention of, of visitors, especially children, is the concept of volume. You know, I, I've seen plenty of uh, exhibits of, of skeletons, um, and maybe like you and I, our skeleton is a but a small part of our volume. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do you, you know impress upon a child, and I'm thinking like a holographic image, even if it's mm -hmm. just part of this animal mm -hmm. that 
you know, a kid could run through and say, oh, you know, I can't put my arms around right. it or something right. like that mm -hmm. to give them a, a real clue of how huge this animal was. Okay, I, I think I, I have some ideas on that one. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that we've been playing around with a little bit is virtual reality. Um, and we've done some explorations with the sort of prototype site um, where we might be able to do something like that um, using either something like the Oculus Rift, which is a virtual reality headset, or um, something called augmented reality, which is where you would hold your phone up and look around the exhibit, uh, and there would be 3D models that look like they're really there in the room, but they're not. Um, so doing something with volume would be possible uh, that way. And Dr. Fisher, uh, a couple questions. Is this mammoth the first hybrid that you've seen between other mammoths? You said it had the mass on or a mammoth, it was a hybrid, hybrid animal. Is this the first one like that? This is not the first hybrid I've seen. I've seen actually quite a few, but this is the most complete of those individuals. We usually see a tooth here, a tooth there, maybe a tusk, maybe a, frag a fragment of a skull. And so what's really interesting uh, well, many interesting things, but part of what's really interesting is that we have as much of this animal as we do. We'd like more, but we have as much as we do. And secondly, it shows certain things that have not been seen before, such as the tusks in their position. The, as soon as I saw that come out, I knew this is neither a Colombian nor a woolly. It's different from both of those. Were you able to map out the location of the bones that were laid out in, in the excavation? And do you think uh, there's a possibility of bones outside of that excavation that might still be out there in the field if you looked yes. further? We did um, a hurried but I think satisfactory job of mapping the bones at the site. We, we do not go into a site like this and just grab and, grab and run. Um, it's critical to us to document not only where things are, but even the orientation in which they occur. So we took photographs, we took measurements. It was hurried, but we did our best to capture that information. Every time we lifted a bone up, I, I picked it up, holding it in its, in its original orientation, and had a photograph of it in my hand above where it was held, so we knew the orientation. And I identified the bone and told people who were taking notes which way was up. So all of that was recorded. Yes, I'm almost certain there's more there. We had only this one day, and so we opened up as large an area as we could handle in the time we had. But I would say we know there's more material there. It'll be a longer discussion with the landowner I'm wondering, one, if you have any ability for those aerial thermal kinds of things they've done at Stonehenge and so forth to see that there is stuff underneath the um, earth. And secondly, those items like the, the legs that are not there, mm -hmm. at least in that immediate site. Is there any knowledge about, for instance, legs being of premium value for trading or for mm -hmm. eating or you know, right. why they might not right. be there? Right. So With respect to discovering the location of things still buried, we have thought about everything we can imagine. And I can, I can imagine some things. In fact, I think some things are physically realistic, but there hasn't been yet the time, the money, and so forth to pursue them. Um, 
So it's not out of the question that someday we would have remote sensing for these things. But as for some, something like infrared or some other sort of, you know, from on high, we, it's, um, the bones are at a depth of about 10 feet in wet sediment. A lot of the technologies that you would think would be useful, like ground penetrating radar, there's no contrast between wet bone and wet sediment in the relevant physical properties. So it's a very challenging problem. Not impossible to solve, but very challenging. Um, legs are probably one of the best things to eat, the most concentration of, of meat. Uh, we often find in these stored animals that at least one leg is missing, and that's probably what they had on the night of the kill. Um, um, but it's early yet to say, since we really haven't fully assessed the site. Questions that came up at our table was about the 3D imaging and um, giving it out free to the public, and um, the possibility of it being something that a scientist in another country could print the 3D model. And why aren't we offering it for free? And then also, why would, are we not offering it? Why for are free? we not offering it out to mm -hmm. the public as mm -hmm. a free freeware? I know right. this is probably an Adam question. Um, and then also, would it be possible as in part of the exhibit to give kids an opportunity to 3D, 3D print some of these models? So that was a couple of the questions that came up over here. Great question. <coughs> Can I take the second question? And the <laughs> um, so to take the second question, the problem with 3D printing sort of on demand, like walk up to the exhibit and, oh, I would like to have a bristly mammoth mandible click. It's, it's not fast enough right now. Um, that little model that we passed around took 26 hours to print. Um, and th that's on a fairly new printer. So um, it, it's possible if the technology changes to the degree to allow that to be possible. Um, but it would have to be a, a sort of delayed order process or something. Um, I'll let Dan talk about the open access issue. For, for open access and why, you know, why not give the world access to these models, um, one part of the answer is to, a, to an extent we are, by serving them on this site, we're actually allowing people to see a lot and even do a lot with it there's, a, let's say, the first stages of a measurement utility built into this, but we're on our way to making a much more complete measurement utility so that you could do research based on what you see on that site. Um, so we're certainly already doing quite a bit. We have talked internally about letting people download the data for free and make their own. The Smithsonian is allowing people to do that with their site, um, the Smithsonian uh, mammoth you saw as the basis for one of our, our illustrations on the handout. Um, the Smithsonian, however, only has, what, 30 specimens? It's a really fraction of their collection. So they're giving away information, but frankly not very much information. Our models are tens of times higher in resolution than the Smithsonian's. There's much more there. We have spent years, I have spent, well, one of our people here, Ed Krasny, worked as a volunteer for me. How many years ago, Ed? From about 2003 through 
uh, in the earliest phases of making these digital models with primitive equipment. And, um, uh, and I've been doing it since certainly the mid-90s. Uh, so there's a lot been invested in this. And the, the site is, is on a Creative Commons licensing system. Um, in fact, it is possible if one knows what one is doing to, to get the information. So we're not making it impossible. The question is how, to what extent we will facilitate um, uh, sharing of information. And we probably are going to move in that direction, but it's something that we have to discuss. It, there are other people's interests involved too. The people who have done research on specimens. Um, it's a complicated question, but, but a good question and a reasonable thing to try to do. Given the topography, does the very location of where it was found help you analyze why it may have passed away? Does DNA play any evidence? And lastly, because it's a hybrid, does the fact that it's a hybrid have any scientific implications? Ah, uh, first of all, the place. Um, the place where it's located, as best we understand this, is simply... Um, the place where there was a handy pond to do this meat storage, the storage of these carcass parts. So it may have nothing to do really with how and where exactly it died. I think whenever they were able to bring down such an animal, they scouted around and said, where's the nearest pond we can use to store the leftovers? And that's what they did. Um, the second question is the DNA. The DNA is important. Um, it will reveal things about population histories. Um, it, you can estimate things like population sizes and the way they change through time. Um, it certainly helps us to link up the sort of relations, the sort of familial relations, let's say, between mammoths from this region and mammoths from, say, out in the Great Plains. So there's a lot more that we can learn from studying that, and we're absolutely on the road to doing that. Um, the third point was, um, uh, is the hybrid, is it, the fact that it's a hybrid is significant in any way. It's significant for one thing in helping to understand the ecology of these animals and maybe also to put some perspective on our understanding of evolution and how it works. This is one of the very general takeaway messages. Um, I wouldn't say that this mammoth is the only way we've learned this, but it's another lesson along these lines. Um, species are phenomena in nature. We do discover species. They are real. They represent separate lineages of organisms that have been out of reproductive continuity for some period of time. But being separate is the result of a process. It's a process of the accumulation of differences that then make them ultimately incompatible reproductively with one another. Those differences take time to develop. And almost always in the evolutionary history of species, there is an interval when, frankly, things could have gone another way. Those populations could have just begun to interact fluidly, and they wouldn't be two separate species anymore. <laughs> and that's the sense in which brown bears and polar bears, in fact, can interbreed with one another, even though we call them separate species, and they've been separate for a long time. So... This is telling us something about, we know when Columbian mammoths got to North America about 1.7 million years ago. We know when woolly mammoths got here about 100,000 years ago. 
And so they've been separate for slightly over a million years. But in a mammal, and in fact a mammal with very long generation times, a million years isn't necessarily enough to accumulate those isolating mechanisms. And, and so seeing the hybridization is telling us something about that process. Oh, okay. And the other thing is often hybrid animals are uh, uh, sterile. Is there any way to tell if that the, the could not reproduce? Um, you're, you're right that they often are, but of course they aren't always. And um, um, although I have to be very cautious in answering this because, you know, we're, we're early in our, in, our, in our learning about this, in, about this individual, certainly. The, um, let me say just a, a little bit more. Um, the thing, the part of the, of, the, of the DNA that's been easiest to sample and understand so far, and again, I'm hesitating, I don't want to give too much away of the work that is ongoing, is the so-called mitochondrial DNA. The mitochondrial DNA is, um, uh, is present in these little organelles within a cell, not in the cell's nucleus, and it's passed down from the mother. And one of the things that we've found, and this is new information, um, is that all of the mammoths in North America have a certain let's say, general sort of mitochondrial DNA. And that suggests that there's actually quite broad interbreeding among them. So I'm going to say they probably were not infertile. They probably were fertile hybrids. But that's just a, a call at this moment in time. Okay. And with that, I certainly, uh, Adam, if I can speak for Adam too, <laughs> want to thank all of you for interesting questions and all of your input into developing what I hope will be a really exciting exhibit. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Steve, for giving the mammoth to the children in the audience.